So we are continuing in the book of what I've been calling Ethics for Exiles. Our text uh, being 1 Peter chapter 4, the New Testament lesson. So to this point in the book, suffering has been mentioned a good deal. And it was, it seemed like a live possibility. Uh, And probably some sort of low-level reality on the ground for these Christians. But now, at this juncture in the book, the mood changes. And now suffering is an urgent reality, a fiery ordeal. And so Peter addresses it again at some length. And we're going to make two points here. They're on the outline in your bulletin. Participation and purification. Participation and purification. So first, participation. You can tell this is a new section in the book. Because Peter greets them again, saying, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal which has come upon you to test you. So whatever is happening now, it's not earlier when he said, if you should suffer for doing good. There's no if. Now, the affliction is upon them. Now it's a fiery reality. And the church should not be surprised at this. Jesus made this clear. No servant is above his master, he said. If they hated me, they will hate you. In this world you will have trouble, but take courage. I have overcome the world. And Peter's already told these exile sojourner Christians to expect slander, to expect vilification. It's difficult for us because we have not lived in a culture where we expect slander or vilification. But it has long been the experience of the church. Peter said to them, Since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves, prepare yourself, fit yourself for the same purpose. Right? We ourselves seem to be descending into some sort of national, cultural, fiery ordeal. But it is not new. It's a fire that has burned much more intensely across the centuries, and it is burning now across huge swaths of the globe where Christians suffer and are killed at alarming rates. I just read a story yesterday about the slaughter of Christians in Nigeria just in 2020. The story focused just on the killing of Nigerian Christians in April of 2020. It's a horrific, horrific litany of slaughter, decapitation, burning, and destruction. If you want to put our cultural moment in a little perspective, I suggest reading on the plight of the church in Nigeria. So Peter says to these Christians in the first century, he says to them, don't be surprised. We walk around all the time saying something like this. I can't believe this is happening in America. And I get that. I understand that. But it's very important to balance that with Peter's words. Don't be surprised. What are you surprised at? 
you've had it very good for a very long time. And that's a wonderful thing. But Peter has a word for the church. Don't be surprised. The furnace or the fiery ordeal has come upon you, he says, to test you. To test you. Right? If you're reading 1 Peter, and I hope you are, and it really repays reading it over and over and over again because he uses a cluster of the same words. But you will find that it's a book which provides remarkable clarity on the moment that we are in. And a remarkable sense of order and proportion. Remember, he opened the letter by saying that we, we rejoice in our unfading and our undefiled and our imperishable inheritance in heaven. Right? If you think that you have an imperishable, undefiled, unfading, right, incorruptible inheritance reserved in heaven for you, you act differently among the cities of man on earth. And then Peter said, we have this inheritance, even though now, even though now, for a little while, we're grieved by various trials. These trials, he said, test the genuineness of your faith. Faith, he said, which is more precious than gold, even though gold perishes when it's tested by fire. Right? This fire comes. Now again, I'm talking about the opening paragraph of the book. Here he talks about a fiery ordeal. But a reader of 1 Peter knows he's talked about fire in the opening paragraph. A fire that comes and tests so that our faith may result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Which is a reference to Christ openly honoring and bestowing glory on you. On the saints at his appearing. So the fiery ordeal here is the same thing as the sifting fire in chapter 1. It comes to test. And we should not think that this is abnormal. As if some strange thing were happening to us. After the fall and before the eschaton, suffering of one form or another grips the whole created order. We resist it, and we long for its end, rightly so. We seek to to ameliorate it, rightly so. We groan by the Spirit, Paul says, right? We groan for the day when, in the words of Revelation, he will wipe every tear away. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. For that the church groans. So we're not to be surprised to think suffering strange, but instead, instead, if we're not to be surprised, what are we to do? And this is startling. Startling. Even incomprehensible, I think. But rather, the text says, rejoice. It's a unique Christian word to the suffering saints. Rather rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Suffering can either harden a person, 
can crack the person open for new beauty to flower forth. Christianity, almost uniquely among the religions of the world, you can remember Pastor Vance would say this many times, he taught world religions at New Pulse for years, has a redemptive view of suffering. Suffering for us is not just something which is an illusion, or something to avoid, or something to get around, or something which is pure curse. Suffering is somehow gathered up into the mystery of Christ's own suffering and transfigured. And becomes something profoundly fruitful and redemptive. The unjust sufferings of the church draw in to the very mystery of Christ's own passion. This is an astonishing thing. And how it happens, we can't really say, other than by the mystery of the Spirit, Christ who suffered once for all, who is in glory, nevertheless makes us partakers in his suffering. And that is what Christian triumph, Christian victory looks like in this age. We share abundantly, Paul says, abundantly in Christ's sufferings. And so a text like this is one that we must learn from. And one of the things we learn is we have to see our own sufferings. Especially our unjust sufferings, but all of our suffering. As a participation, as a summons into the mystery of Christ's cross. His suffering, if you will, dignifies our suffering. This is an extraordinarily unique word. The world is full of suffering. Lots of it clearly useless, or apparently so. And the the Christian gospel comes in and it has a suffering God, a crucified God at the center of it. And says, your suffering can be dignified because of this suffering. And because this is so, the text says we rejoice, or we're called to rejoice, in, in, in the fiery ordeal. Right? In chapter 3, Peter said, if you suffer for righteousness, you will be blessed. So he said this already in a couple different ways. He says it a little more clearly here. But he's just following Jesus Christ, who said, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. It's as if being persecuted for righteousness gives you a sort of um, immediate kind of tasting and partaking of the kingdom. That's what's happening to Christians in Nigeria when the situation is seen with the eyes of faith. Blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is our joy in the suffering with Jesus. We rejoice in this suffering, Peter says. Notice the text. So that we might be overjoyed, overjoyed when his glory is revealed. So Peter is arming these Christians to suffer, and suffer they will. And here's what he says to them. Joy in suffering now, overjoyed, superabundant joy at the unveiling of Christ in the full splendor of his glory. The Christ who does not forget, who does not lose track of his sheep, but keeps their tears in a bottle. The revelation of Christ in glory refers to his coming at the end of the age. 
All the way back again in the first paragraph of the book, right? Your faith is being tested so that it might result in glory at the revelation or the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. So Paul, in Colossians, tells us we have died and our life is now hidden with Christ and God. Our lives are in heaven where Christ is. And then Paul says this, when Christ, who is your life, appears, Christ is hidden, he shall appear. And then you will appear with him in glory. Glory, as we say around here, is an eschatological word. So here we see in the text this joining together, this conjunction, it's unbreakable in the New Testament. Suffering, then glory. Suffering characterizes this age. Yes, it's true, some people suffer much more than others. But everybody is in a groaning, suffering, afflicted creation. Suffering characterizes the age. Glory speaks of the age to come. Jesus himself, as I said, taught this. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Blessed are you when the culture slanders you. Rejoice and be glad, Jesus said, because great is your reward in heaven. It's a, it's a word we're not naturally inclined to hear, right? Blessedness now in suffering and a great reward in glory. Can't there be a third way? Paul puts it this way in this marvelous passage in 2 Corinthians 4, where he says, this momentary light affliction is preparing for us. And you can read what Paul thinks momentary light affliction is in his letters. It is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, it's important to say that suffering does not produce glory automatically. Some people are made worse by suffering. It does it, Paul says, as we look not at the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. So what are you looking at in the midst of your affliction and suffering and distress? The things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal, the apostle says. So back to Peter's text, verse 14. He says, if you're insulted because of the name of Christ... That glorious name, which we are honored to bear. Right? A Christian is a Christ bearer, a, 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 a little Christ. Right? Christians were first called that in the book of Acts, I think, at Antioch. It's a name other people applied to them. Right? If, you're, if you're insulted because of that name, what does Peter say? You are blessed. And how, how or why is that so? Why are we blessed for suffering in the name? Because the text says the spirit of glory in God rests on us. It's an interesting phrase, the spirit of glory and the spirit of God rests upon the suffering. The spirit of God, the bearer of the radiant glory of God, already rests, hovers, cloud-like on the suffering church. It's an, it's an evocation of the cloud which followed Israel in the wilderness. And you know what's inside that cloud? 
The highest heavens, right? When Ezekiel peers into the cloud, he sees myriad of angels flying around and he sees God lifted up. That spirit which rested on the Messiah. We saw this in the Old Testament lesson from Isaiah 11. The spirit which descended on Jesus in his baptism rests upon the afflicted church and causes her blessedness. We're not blessed. And Peter gives no cause for illusion to these Christians. They are not blessed because their suffering is going to bear any particular short-term fruit, either cultural or political or social. There's not a syllable of that in 1 Peter. In fact, he expects the opposite. And often quite the opposite is what happens. Throughout the book of Revelation, the church is seen from two perspectives. From an outward perspective, her outward estate is trampled by the nations. And while she's being trampled in her outward estate, John sees her triumphant and victorious, even in her martyrdom, in heaven. So we are blessed because suffering rightly embraced produces glory, stores up glory for the saints. It's a very hard word. But if you're afflicted this morning, Peter says you should rejoice. You should look to Christ, to the things that are invisible, because you are storing up an abundant weight of glory for yourself. Of course, we're not to suffer for doing evil. But if we suffer, as Christians, the text says, we're not to be ashamed, but to praise God that we bear that name, the name of Christ. So that's participation. The second thing here is purification. Now, if, if you think this first point was a bit of a, a tough word to hear, Peter does something here that's quite provocative, I think. Here he gives what seems to be a very strange and a mysterious reason for rejoicing and suffering. We might call this an eschatological reason. Listen to what he says. It is time, verse 17, it is time, Peter says. Now this is not the standard word for chronological time. This word means an appointed time, a divine event. Now again, if you're reading the book over and over again, which I hope you are, right? You'll remember that in chapter 1, Peter said, Jesus has been revealed in the last time. That we are being kept for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He's already told us the end of all things is at hand. And now we're told that it is time for judgment. Listen. It is time for the judgment to begin with God's household. This in the first century. The judgment at the end of the age, the great white throne judgment day, is already beginning in the life of the church. Wow, how's that for narrating the suffering on the ground of Christian people? The prophets, Malachi, Zechariah, for example, speak of this coming, fiery, purging, sifting, testing judgment to come on the people of God at the end of the age. Right? The fiery ordeal that Peter speaks of 
is not a mere season that passes for the church and then everything just goes back to normal. This is the purifying judgment of God, he's saying to them, in the form of pagan hostility. We're like, well, I thought they're supposed to be getting judged. It's the same problem the prophet Habakkuk has, right? He sees the Babylonians coming in to to destroy Israel, and he says, Oh God, what are you doing? Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. I mean, we're bad, but they are much worse. Judge them. And God says, you'd be astonished at what I'm doing in the earth. I'll get to them. It's basically what he says to Habakkuk. But now, it's you. I mean, think about this. This is the coming judgment of God, Peter tells these Christians, in the form of the pagan hostility you're facing. It is the fire of the last day of God, the burning fire of the last judgment, to purify the elect for glory. Judgment begins, these same prophets taught, at the household of God. I thought it began with our political enemies, actually, but apparently it begins with us. Right? The final judgment begins with the household of God. And Peter says it is already time for that judgment to begin. Who narrates the cultural hostility that Christianity faces in our day this way? This is the great tribulation through which we must enter the kingdom of God, Peter says. And if it begins with us, which it does... And if the church itself will be saved as through fire, which it will, then he asks, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And then notice what he does here in this text. He cites from Proverbs chapter 11 in the Greek Old Testament. Here's here's the quote. You can see it there in the text. If it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Uh, There's Peter the optimist again. This is the question of a man who feels the fire of the coming judgment and feels it so intensely that he asks the question, how can anybody stand before it? It's the same spirit that the prophets have. Now, he is, in the long term, an eschatological optimist. But as far as history goes, he thinks it's a fiery furnace. Why else would he say, all the way back in chapter 1 again, fix your hope completely? You know, not, not partially. You know, not, not a little hope now and then some hope on Jesus' second coming. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the coming glory of Christ. Which, of course, is not to say we don't have earthly hopes and aspirations. But the great, grand, pulsating hope of the Christian church is the appearance of Jesus Christ in glory. Fix your hope there. Notice that Peter assumes and teaches here that it is hard for the righteous, even the righteous, to be saved. I mean, this, of course, is something that Christians in hostile cultures, right... Something the martyrs have always understood. Again, if you get like the Voice of the Martyrs magazine, you will realize this. 
It is hard for the righteous to be saved. It's something Christians in large swaths of the world today understand. The church is saved, and here by salvation we mean final future salvation. The church is saved through a purifying, consuming, testing fire that began in the first century and continues to today. What we have, blessed as it is, has largely been an anomaly in global history. So, the bleeding edge, right, the face of this fire is unjust suffering and persecution. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God, Jesus said. Jesus, and it's remarkable how often Peter is just echoing back, funneling down to us the words of Jesus himself in another form. Right? Jesus knows it's hard for the righteous to be saved. Listen to what Jesus says. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. The gate is wide, the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. These words take on a new resonance when Christians look at a future in which they might in fact be a minority. And a marginalized one at that. But they go back to Jesus. Few find life. Many find destruction. And when he was asked by his disciples, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Here's what he says. And here he's evoking the wide and the narrow gate metaphor again. He says, strive to enter by the narrow door. For I tell you, many will try and seek and be unable to enter. I mean, that's not a particularly comforting answer to, Lord, will there be many who are saved? Oh, he said this too. Many are called, few are chosen. I mean, how could that be any clearer? Many are called, which here means outwardly called by the preaching of the gospel. The summons goes out to the whole world, but few are those who respond to that word. One more example from our Lord's teaching in life. The famous parable in Luke 18 of the the unjust judge and the persistent widow pleading with the unjust judge. In that parable, Jesus recognizes that justice is often long delayed and deferred. And it comes swiftly, he says. He will bring it swiftly for his elect. Swiftly at his appearing. But because justice is deferred and delayed in this age often, he asks this question at the end of the parable. This is an amazing question for Jesus to ask his disciples. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? My lands, when the Son of Man comes, will there be any believers out there? And in the context of the parable, you know what the answer is? Eh, it's not totally clear. I mean, Jesus is asking the question precisely because it's deeply relevant. Right? If the answer was, oh yeah, there'll be gazillions of believers, the whole parable makes no sense. The parable is about pleading with God for justice and not getting it. Right? And not getting it. 
and having to plead and plead and plead and plead and plead, right? And Jesus says, it'll come. I'll bring it swiftly. But here's what I want to know. When I come, will there be anybody who still believes? He knows it is hard for even the righteous to endure unto future salvation in a bent world that will be hostile to you. So if that's the case, Peter says, if this fire is going to burn up the chaff among the righteous, what becomes of the ungodly and the sinner? Well, it will be impossible for anyone who rejects the gospel of grace, right? They will not stand in the great day. Right? The same fire which purifies the elect is the fire that consumes. Again, just to make clear, it is not suffering itself which saves us. It is the gospel of God. But that gospel, if it's embraced with saving faith, thrusts the church into a cauldron, into a fiery ordeal. And that fire is the fire of the coming judgment on the church. And only by the gospel, Peter says, only by union with the sufferings of Jesus will the righteous be saved on the day of judgment. Suffering, then glory. All glory for us comes along this path of a purifying participation in the mystery of the cross. So what do we do? What does Peter tell these Christians to do? It's very, very simple. It's verse 19. Those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. I mean, it's easier said than done, but, the, but it's not hard to understand. Peter said of the suffering, right, of the wounded, of the non-retaliating and battered Jesus, that as he suffered, he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. And you are called to do the same. To continue, to keep entrusting yourself, to persist in appealing to God, the just judge. We know, Paul says, whom we have believed, and we are convinced that he is able to guard what we have entrusted to him. Are you entrusting your afflictions to Jesus Christ? Your suffering, small or great, you must entrust everything to him. He will guard it and keep it against that day. And notice who we commit ourselves to here. It's a strange term. It's very, very rare in the New Testament. Peter refers to God as the faithful creator. He calls God creator here because he's alluding to his role as the universal judge of all humanity, to his prerogatives in creation. He just talked about this fiery judgment so that when he comes to God, he sees him as the creator, Lord of all, all men, all tribes, all tongues. So commit yourself to your faithful creator and, Peter says, continue to do good. Now that sounds maybe like it's trite, perhaps, or cliche. But remember, in the context that the church finds itself in here and often around the world, continuing to do good is continuing to do the thing that is causing the pain. Right? It is continuing to do the thing that is actually provoking the suffering. Don't shrink back. Doing good to all, honoring all, is at the heart of your calling. 
Wait, Peter says, wait for him who judges justly, for the one who vindicated Jesus in the resurrection and will vindicate the church at the resurrection. So now, so now, in this time, Peter says, we rejoice because we've been given the dignity, right? We've been given the high honor of participating in Christ's own suffering. Nobody wants this high honor. I understand that. But this is the only way through suffering to glory. This is the judgment of God, Peter says, beginning at the house of God. Think of it this way. In entrusting yourself, in turning to Christ in the midst of affliction, what you are doing is being purified for that great day. You are making the day of judgment easier on yourself. Right? It's like, it's like God says, you have an opportunity now to participate in that fire and to be purified by that fire and to be tested and refined even as you will stand and be examined on that day. It is hard for the righteous to be saved. This is a very important word, I think, for us as American Christians. It is hard for the righteous to be saved. We walk around in a world where if you go to the town I came from before I came here in West Tennessee, everybody's a Christian. You would think the text says it's hard to find somebody who's not saved. It is hard for the righteous to be saved. The text should just kick the legs out from underneath all of our presumption about ourselves. But when we come through this fire, we will be overjoyed, for Christ's glory will be revealed. This is, I know I say this a lot, but this is why we are to be fixated and passionate about Christ's eschatological glory, about seeing his face, about the restoration of the whole created order about the reconciliation of things visible and invisible, things in heaven and things on earth, about the blessed vision of Jesus himself, now raised, now ascended, now transfigured, coming in glory. Without that at the center, this sounds bizarre. We will be overjoyed when Christ's glory is revealed. And you too then will be revealed with him in glory. That's your destiny. That's your calling. Calibrate your hope accordingly. Amen.